Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 148, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, what steps should schools be taking as they think about the effects of COVID-19 on the fall semester? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a broad idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest tells us why it's okay for parents to play video games with kids. In fact, he encourages it. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and today is April the 24th, and the principal that just won't slow down is with us, Christina Pollard. How are you doing, Christina? I'm great, great. Good morning. You were telling me uh, right before we started recording that you felt like things were, uh, you, you said, slower this week. Not a whole lot's happened. I, I guess, you know, you guys are getting more into a rhythm, right? Absolutely. Um, we are really um, perfecting the process of providing distance learning and meals for our students. Um, but we've been waiting on the executive order to come down from our governor in our state. And with that being released, it's given us a little bit more clarity on how to move forward. Okay, so what information was in that that, that kind of gives you a little bit of guidance? Well, we know specifically that he expects learning to continue. Um, The executive order pointed out a few things that stood out for me. One is that superintendents or school districts are going to be required to submit a summary or a plan to the Mississippi Department of Education on how they will provide some type of summer remediation and enrichment for students in order to have a positive impact on the 2020-2021 school year. So that, that first and foremost, tells me a lot of people who said, no, we're not doing anything for summer. Um, They may have to rethink uh, their decision. I like that you said that because I actually am going to have a list for you that I'm going to give you that kind of touches on that, but it's not specific to summer. It's more specific to the start of next fall. But I think you could shift some of that to summer. So we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a second. Was there anything else from the executive order that was, you know, eye opening or surprising? Well, we were waiting to see if the governor specifically or the Department of Education, if they were going to have some type of directive regarding grading, graduation, promotions. And the executive order only stated that the governor and the Department of Education want to know that grading processes are still in order, that we haven't just fallen off and left students, you know, to, to, to just wing it out there. But they did not give any direct um, instructions. So that's That leaves it up to superintendents, school boards, um, and school districts to get together, make some decisions, and really move forward because this is the time of the year where we would have been in state testing, which means we would have had all of our end-of-year plans together. That includes uh, promotions for, um, you know, really for kindergarten, eighth grade, some schools end with fifth, obviously senior events, graduation, and then award ceremonies and then end of year activities. Now we know that some activities are just null and void because we cannot have face to face, but now school districts can begin to plan how you will reward those students who have perfect attendance, honor roll, all of those things. How will you celebrate their hard work 
um, for this school year. And so that's, that's our next steps. You, um, posted, you had me laughing. I think it was on Twitter last night. I saw this. Um, it was some meme of somebody basically, and, and you might need to phrase it better than I am, but she was basically saying like, I'm just going to wait and see what happens everywhere else. Meanwhile, I'm going to kind of hide where I am, you know, as things kind of start to loosen up. That's exactly how I feel. And, and unfortunately there's some people out there, you know, have to be on those front lines and have to work. But as the, the rest of us kind of come out of hiding for lack of a better term, I, I'm going to definitely proceed with caution. Listen, that meme was directed at the state of Georgia. Today, <laughs> they are opening up businesses that I personally don't deem as essential. Right. And let me tell you, I faithfully attended the hair salon, the nail salon. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't need tanning and I never, you know, I don't really have time for spas and I'm not looking to get a tattoo, but I just don't deem any of those places essential. Um, I, I'm concerned about whether those businesses, um, you know, made some adjustments or preparations in order to protect people. But at the same time, I'm just going to sit back and watch and see yeah. how the first, second, maybe even third wave goes before I venture it's, out. It's a little weird. And, and we love our, our listeners in Georgia, but it's a little strange that we're going to be almost like watching what happens in Georgia. I would say 14 to 21 days, right? And then we'll look well, to know, see if there's a spike. Yeah, but it's not just Georgia. I mean, there's a couple of different um, states across the nation that are, you know, planning to open back up. Let's talk about Tennessee a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, they are doing it a little bit more streamlined where they're going to kind of roll out um, these non-essential businesses, but they're opening up too. And I and I, and I I feel for the small businesses like nail salons and hair salons. I mean, Absolutely. let's be very clear. I support them. One of the things that, you know, I personally have done is uh, tip my stylist on the low low yeah. um, because they have no other means of bringing in income if they can't go in the salon. But at the same same time, your life means so much more to me than for me to put you at risk because I want my hair to look good to sit at home. Right. Yeah. It's um. Again, I think most people in Georgia are gonna be like me and proceed with caution. But I, I mean, agree. There, I think they are too. There will be some that don't, and and I guess we'll we'll see what happens there. And um, should... we don't wish harm on any of them. We no. hope that you know maybe it has flatlined and coming on out that it'll show hey that we're okay but i do think that a lot of um, decisions being made are not being made based on science yeah i i agree with you there now listen to this decision this is out of um seattle the school board they recently approved a plan to temporarily replace their their grading policy during all of this and so their school board voted five to two to go about it this way, they're they're either going to have this is just for this semester, the spring semester of 2020. Um, the high schools will use either an A or an incomplete. What are you? What's your general thoughts on that? We can dive into it in a minute. I, I almost need to process that a little while because <laughs> either you're perfect or you don't exist. Yeah, and so that's they, my initial reaction without hearing any further information as to how they developed that. So uh, they anticipate that A will be the main grading option. Um, they do not anticipate very many incompletes in this situation. If our okay. teachers stay engaged and our students stay engaged to their extent possible, and then they go on to say an incomplete grade as the result of a student who does not participate nor complete their lessons, and teachers have tried all other options. So that's kind of how they get there. And then if they actually assign somebody an incomplete grade, the teacher is going to have to accompany that grade with an explanation of how the educator came to that conclusion. 
So does that Will make you feel any better? Will the child have an opportunity to clear up the incomplete? Perhaps they are in a dire situation where, you know, they've been displaced because they've lost their home. Parents have lost their jobs. They don't have devices or they don't have internet or they do. And it's slow. It's not effective. It became frustrating. So they gave up. I, I, what, your, the answer is yes. District leaders right. uh, said students who receive an incomplete grade will be able to finish their work through summer and fall semesters of 2020, and their transcript will be updated. So and I think- With what, that being said, then, I think it's a win-win. Okay. I, I, th- I think it's a, a pretty rational idea. I think what they were trying to stay away from, apparently some other districts are using credit or no credit, and they wanted it to be this way, where it was an A or or incomplete. So if you're a, a C student or a B student, this is a plus, right? Like you're going to get A's, I guess. It is. It is, but I also essentially think it's the same thing, credit or no credit. I mean, an A is going to give you the credit you need, you know, towards graduation. Mm-hmm. Um, incomplete and no credit, you can't graduate. This is their quote for that, and you, we can determine if it makes sense. We know that many universities and other programs across the country have stated that students will not be penalized for posting credit or no credit, she said. But that is not a universal approach. So making A the only credit-based grade will ensure our students are not penalized. So basically, not so much, I think the agreement is the no credit equals incomplete, but A is better than, quote, credit. It's kind of- I think in the end, Nick, if universities are going to, you know, relax a little on this spring's grading, I don't think either one of it is going to matter because if you were already on the track to, you know, two year or four year um, college immediately getting ready after you graduate, they're going to take you anyway, because if you're a senior right now, mm-hmm. for the most part, you should have already established your next steps. You know, seniors right. don't wait to the end of their senior but year. But if we're they, speaking to the juniors, who who those grades are important. To the juniors, I still think the aftermath from all of this a year from now, there's going to be some type of universal discussion where university and colleges are going to understand that there was no type of oversight um, for us to streamline this process across the nation. And I, I think there's going to be forgiveness. And I don't think that districts who chose to say an A those students will be, you know, held to a, you know, a little higher um, credit than those that did not. I don't think that we should hold any child um, accountable for those differences that educators are making the decisions on. Okay, I've got another topic that's right up your alley that I'm sure you'll have an opinion on. First off, <laughs> first off, do you guys practice looping at your school where like students are with the teacher for multiple years? Now, that is a situational thing. If a teacher has been assigned, say, a class of students with lots of learning gaps, very, you know, difficult, um, they didn't attend school well the year before, um, and we pick a teacher who is just dynamic and can make, you know, major gains with these children, and we see the impacts, positive impacts of that throughout the year, then that is how a principal will decide, hey, I need you to follow these children and keep going. So, yes, we have practice looping. It is not a standard practice or decision um, within our building. All right. So there was an article in Education Drive. It was a Texas first grade teacher, Mark Rogers, um, who says that he believes now is the perfect time to do looping. And his argument is that teachers know exactly what wasn't covered from the previous year. They know their students. They know how to fill in the gaps. And he's basically making an argument that these students, especially, I guess, in more of the grades that, that you cover, should be with the same teacher next year? Like, what's your general reaction to that? 
I think that's a great idea for primary grades. And let's just be specific. K-4, that can have a tremendous positive impact with us trying to figure out how we're going to handle um, school next year. But here's one thing we want to keep in mind. We still have absolutely no idea what the situation is going to be like in three or four months. I mean, Nick, we could very well say, all right, we're getting ready. We've held registration. We're going back to school August the 5th. And then three weeks later, some reoccurrence happens and we're back at home. You are just teeing so- up my next topic. So <laughs> I appreciate that because that's that's kind of what, what I wanted to go into next. So it's like, yeah, looping maybe may not work, but we don't have all the information. Is that kind no, of I, a- I'm saying that looping would work because of that. Okay. Um, okay, I got gotcha. you. to support the same children. This creates a situation where students are out of sync. They are not structured. They're not in a set schedule. Younger children, while we talk about kids being resilient, I mean, this is going to be disruptive. So I think his idea that we should consider looping the, the lower grades, I'm going to say lower grades, is a phenomenal idea. And I hadn't even thought about that for, for next year. Now, my situation I'm moving to, you know, a middle school where that's just not possible. Okay. But if I was going to return to my elementary school, I absolutely think that would be a, a great idea. Okay, well, good to hear. All right. So here's some other ideas when we're talking about fall 2020. And a guy by the name of Robert Pondesio has um, kind of come up with a list of things that or suggestions that educators should be doing. We need to plan for different scenarios going into the fall. Like, are we going to do this fully open? Are we going to do it staggered? Um, or will it be even virtual for a period of time? So those discussions should be happening. Would you agree with that? Or is that too extreme? I agree. Okay. Um, he says we need to um, plan to accelerate the learning of students who enter the furthest behind, which I think is kind of what you were saying about the summer in a way. But mm-hmm. Should this happen in the summer or should it happen in the fall? In your, your opinion? Um, I think we need to continue distance learning in the summer, um, ramp up the amount of videos and instructional support. Um, that students can have access to, but we need to continue to move cautiously in regard to face-to-face instruction. Um, he argues that the district's strongest teachers, sh- this is a little different than looping, the strongest teachers should be paired with the students that may be furthest behind. Is that even... That should always be the practice. Okay. That yeah. should always be the practice because one year with a poor teacher sets a child behind two years. That's, a, that's supported by research. He also says that the primary focus for the earlier weeks should be reinforcing the previous grades learning. Do you think that teachers should be almost given, let's just say two, three weeks to kind of reinforce and almost evaluate? Like, do you feel like your teachers need that evaluation of like, where are we? Are we behind? That's absolutely what we've already discussed within my current school district is that right now, looking at the pace we're going, August needs to be a month of remediation, a month of social emotional supports, a month of helping children get back into the groove and definitely assessing um, where they are. And then that's going to drive what we'll be able to do moving forward with the current grade level standards. You said social emotional support, which I think is so key. And the other day I was wondering, like, are we... I mean, it's it's unavoidable, but like what's going to happen to this generation? Almost like my grandmother was, you know, part of the greatest generation, went through the Depression, World War II. And I remember when she passed, like we, you go to clean out her house. She kept every jar like it'd be like empty roux jars of like, you know, and, they, and she just cleaned them out and kept them. It's like, you know, you didn't want to lose anything because there was That's a point correct. where you had nothing. What what will be the effect to this young generation, to, to my five year old, my 
15 year old, almost 15 year old, um, you know, what will they be like because of this? I just wonder. I can't predict fully. This might be something we can discuss in a few more months, but I do think that we need to help them realize when they can process it. They're a part of history and how they Mm -hmm. respond to it will determine how positive their future can be. And I'll give you an example. My son has been home um, since spring break and you know, we're, we're so comfortable with doing all the things we need to do as adults, adults, that it's very easy to forget to really pay attention to your teenagers to see how this can be impacting them. And we had a very interesting conversation on Friday. I noticed that his attitude was different. He was a little chippy. And I waited a while, gave him some space, and I went back to his game room midday, and I just said, son, what's the matter? You know, did you not rest last night? What's going on? And I'm sharing something very personal, but he just said, mom, I'm I'm tired of this. He said, I wake up every morning, I eat breakfast, I do my workouts with dad, then I do my schoolwork, I eat lunch, and then I come into my game room. He said, I miss my friends. I miss school. I miss baseball season. And I realized at that very moment this is starting to get to my son. Yeah, I, He's not I, having any human interaction other than interaction with us. And teenagers do not want to interact right. with their parents. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and I worry about with my five-year-old, this may seem weird, and, and I'm sure a psychologist will be able to evaluate this later, but the physical contact, the lack of, exactly. like, so it's like they we go to see my parents. My parents live in the same neighborhood as me, which is great, but okay. we haven't been going over to their house other than to, like, say hey and maybe exchange some food from afar or something like that. And um, so I have my five-year-old who loves her grandparents and she now knows that she cannot like she's accepted and learned that she cannot go near them so she sees them and she blows them kisses and they blow her kisses back and this is all happening about 10 15 15 feet apart and i just wonder like is there gonna are these young kids gonna be not used to hugging somebody when they see him, a family, like it just like that physical touch. Exactly. I don't know. I, I don't know where we're going to go with this or, or will this all just kind of, we'll go back to the way human beings are. And naturally. maybe we will be able to have physical t- contact, but we don't know. We might be living in a society where we wear face masks regularly. Right. If you fly on a plane for the rest of our lives, might we be wearing face masks? And I know that's a, a not just flying a, on a plane, just everyday interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that's a dark well, thought, but mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it, it, who knows? Okay. I don't mean to go down too much of a rabbit hole there. He also says, I kind of like this, and this may be hard to execute, but it's a good idea. He says, press new college graduates and non-professionals into service for several weeks or months of targeted, um, to like target areas of tutoring, like high dosage tutoring and high need schools. So basically he's saying, call on your community of experts to offer tutoring out the gate in the fall semester. Well, I, I, we've always thought about, you know, you need to reach out to your community members, your businesses. But one thing that has come down in our state recently, um, generally when, when teachers retire, there's a stipulation that they have to wait um, a certain amount of days before they can go back and serve within a school district. And then they're only allowed to serve 90 of the 187 days within the school year. Well, that has just been lifted. So now retired teachers can come back and serve the entire school year next year if necessary. That's so good. I'm excited about that. Do you think that you're going to see that actually happen in practice? I mean, you think some people are going to oh, come out absolutely. of retirement? Oh, definitely. There will be people to come out of retirement, no different than we've seen doctors and nurses come out of retirement to try to help these frontline workers. Um, It'll take away some of the limitations because what happens is if they decide to serve in the past, if they decide to serve as a tutor 
or as an interventionist, um, or even as a long-term sub for someone who might be out on maternity leave, after those 90 days are up, say they serve the 90 days in the fall, then you can't utilize their expertise in the spring. And so you either had to, you know, let them go, or you had to spread out their 90 days over the, the school year. Now I'm excited to say that we can reach out to some of these retired teachers who can come in, pull two or three students at a time, and give intensive instructional support um, when great. we're able to get back face to face, and there won't be any limitations on how many days they can serve, and, and they can still collect their benefits during all this time. They, they will they collect their benefits, and then we're able to supplement those benefits with tutorial pay, which is usually about twenty dollars an hour. Right. Okay. Well, this is great. I, I had not heard that yet, and I'm glad to hear that. And that's you said that's a Mississippi thing, but you think that's going on all over the country? Oh, I do think that'll go on all over the country. Yeah. Okay. Well, good stuff. Well, um, so what was your big takeaway today? Is the looping thing, did that kind of catch you off guard? Do you like that the one? The looping thing caught me off guard, but it's an excellent idea. And I'm actually looking forward to sharing um, with some colleagues about that just to give them some ideas since they are going to still be in elementary right. uh, locations. Yeah. All right. Well, Christina, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Um, I always enjoy you. Yes, uh, likewise. And uh, we will keep it going and kind of keep people informed about what's going on. Uh, are you ready for our bright idea? Always ready. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is one of the leading minds when it comes to global education and learning through digital play. Dr. Jordan Shapiro is a professor at Temple University, and he has a brand new book titled The New Childhood. The book is getting a lot of buzz because he's making a case for kids and parents to embrace more screen time. Dr. Shapiro, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, the book, The New Childhood, has been featured on NPR, Forbes, USA Today, and it's getting so much attention because you're making this case that more screen time might be a good thing. And, and this is obviously against the grain of traditional thinking. So I'll just ask right out, what do you know that others don't? Well, well, for the first thing I know is is that I don't think much about uh, screen time in general. I don't, I don't, I, I never like that that term so much uh, for what we currently live in. You know, screen time is a word, a term that came out of the television age and uh, televisions and digital technology. They're really different things if you think about it, right? Television, the television screen we sit in front of, we sort of passively consume entertainment from it. Where 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 with these digital screens, we do so many different kinds of things. And so for me, the question is much less. Uh, uh, you know, whether screen time is good or bad, but more, how do we use these technologies that are now so deeply integrated into our lives? So, uh, you know, all of our lives, your life, my life, our kids' lives, what we need to do is, is, is recognize that those technologies are integrated into kids' lives and then teach them how to use them well. Uh, and this sort of question of uh, uh, how much time should they have on them or how much time should we restrict them from being on a, a phone or a tablet or a video game console, I, I just don't see how it does a service to kids who really need to learn how to, how to make the right decisions when it comes to screens and digital technology. I know you're um, somewhat of a thought leader in that world, but you also you have a background, I think, in philosophy and, and just history in general. Am I wrong about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My PhD is actually in in psychology, um, but but when I was when I was doing it, I I, I studied very closely with a, a gentleman named Ed Casey, who's a, a pretty well known phenomenologist. So uh, that's sort of that's continental philosophy. And so you know, if I could go back now, I would get a philosophy degree instead. But but now I have a a a psychology degree with a philosophy dissertation. <laughs> Which leads me to my next question. Is there a technology that maybe came out 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1000 years ago, that people reacted to in a similar way we're reacting to to what the iPhone is doing to us? 
<laughs> you know, you know, that's sort of like uh, um, um, asking. Uh, uh, you should ask it the other way. You should go: Is there a technology where that where that didn't happen? I'm not sure there were any where that didn't happen. Uh, there's so so many examples that, that that I found just when doing research for the book. You know, for example, even even books. When books came out, there was a there was a huge. Uh, you know, when the printing press was invented and, and they started to bind books that people could take home, there was this huge sort of backlash that. Um, that, that, that it would become too isolated or private an activity, right? Because stories had already had always been told communally, right? Whether that's around a campfire huh. or in church or, or or whatever. But 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 everyone said, well, now people are going to just be in a cocoon and, and 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 never talk. And of course, that that is true. That is what happened to some extent. Um, another example I often give is. Uh, um, is uh, is I use the train because uh, because I like that there's that I can find physicians and neuroscientists when the train came out warning parents not to let their kids uh, go sit by the window on the train because the images go by so fast and, and the human brain is not capable of taking in things at that speed and that they should be really careful that they don't get brain damage um, and so, so I mean those are two examples that I sort of love because they sound so absurd to us now but I, I think you can my guess is in every, in any technology you're going to see this resistance and the reason you know is is not just hey we don't like change right it's more that I, at least from my perspective you know humans we we mediate our entire experience through tools that's what we do that's what we've always done right even language is a kind of a tool that we use to shape how we think about things how we see things how we interact with things and so so a, a big transformational technology like like digital media for example right not, o- not only changes our everyday experiences, but it's also going to change how we see the world. Um, uh, and, and so it's not at all surprising that, that people would go, wait, this is sort of uh, dissonant with the current view that I have. You um, encourage people to do something that I've, I've been doing, and I, I almost felt, am I doing the right thing? And, and that is you encourage parents to play video games with their kids. That's the, absolutely. Um, um, in fact, you know, that's where the, that's where all my work on video games started is I started to play with my own kids. And and uh, the reason that I started was my, I, I had separated from my then wife uh, and I was worried about the kids. Right. They're, they were little and they were they were going through something that was, you know, it was so it was hard enough on me. I couldn't imagine how hard it would be on, on them to go through such a giant, a giant shift in their normal life. Uh, and, and I wanted to like, you know, how can I be with them? How can I spend time with them? How can I create opportunities for them to to talk about the, th- the things that they're feeling, and I thought, okay, I could tell them to come outside and hike, or I, uh, but but they're going to just hear that as why do I have to stop playing video games? So I said, okay, instead I'll sit next to them on the couch and play the video games with them, and that gave me the opportunity to talk about so many other things because we were just sort of sitting next to each other playing. At first, I was sort of tricking them into having the hard conversations, but then I discovered that I could actually have those conversations even better if I started to use the language of the game, right? If I started to use vocabulary from Mario Brothers, if I started to go, you know, when you're so angry and you just want to stomp on a Koopa Troopa, right? Uh, I mean, they were really little then, so I could use those kinds of uh, uh, analogies. But, but what I realized was happening, and this is where the book, The New Childhood, comes from, is that, that I was also teaching them how to create narratives about their digital life at the same time, right? It was both using the digital world to help them make sense of their non-digital life, and I was also preparing them to actually have a much more stable and healthy relationship to their digital world. 
I mean, I mean, do you find that anyone who has a teenage uh, son or, or even daughter, um, they might play some video games that are somewhat violent at times. Do you think it's the right thing to do is rather than say, turn it off, don't play that is maybe play that game with them and have a conversation about the violence that they're playing just to kind of separate what's real and what's not? I mean, in an ideal world, yes, but you're talking about teenagers and, I, and I, my oldest is 13 now and I can tell you that, that he rarely wants to play with me. Um uh, uh, he doesn't like when I come to his video games. Plus, I'm not good enough at his video games to play with him. But but uh, but I will <laughs> often sit down with him and ask questions about the games that he's playing. Right? What, wait, what is this game? How does it work? Um, why 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 is this going on? You know, when they were a little bit younger, when they sort of first had their introduction to violent games, I kept them away from violent games for a long time, mostly because I wasn't prepared to talk about it, not because I was sort of worried about what they would see, but more I knew that I would have to I would have to think about how to have a conversation with them about what they were seeing. But once I decided they were at an age where I was comfortable doing that, I sat down with them and I, and I, I, I said, wait, I don't understand. Why is it fun to shoot people? Right? I don't get it. Why, why, why is that a fun thing for you to do? I, I don't get why that's play. Uh, and, and I sort of forced them to, to come up with some answers. And of course, it's really hard to answer that question. And who knows why it's fun? You know, it's target practice. We, we used to play duck hunt when I was a kid. You know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this. But forcing them to have that conversation, and, and we've done that conversation many times since, means that they're not sort of blindly uh, living through an experience, right? I know that they have my voice in the back of their head when they turn on a new game going, wait, why is this violence so gory? Uh, why would this be fun? And if they were doing that kind of reflection while playing, then I don't think we have anything to worry about. What we have to worry about is kids going through sort of violent imagery with no reflection. Was it these conversations that was that the catalyst for the new childhood, your book? Uh, that was some of the catalyst. I mean, I mean, I was already writing a lot about them when those conversations started. The, the catalyst to the book really became after writing blogs and articles and 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 giving speeches for for a few years about it. I said, you know, I really need to lay out this argument in a, in a long form way, in a way where where I can really really show it all the way through because there's so many threads to it. There's both a thread about sort of the 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 long. Uh, the long arc of history and how technology plays into us as a civilization. There's a thread about, uh, you know, what we know about how play shapes the developmental experience of young people. Uh, there's, there's, there's a thread about, you know, how, how do you make sense of a world of predictive algorithms and privacy concerns? All these things needed to come together. And, and while I had done little bits of them in, in articles, I really wanted to bring them together into a full, full argument. So that, that was really, really the beginning of, of, of the book. You have a thread about encouraging kids to to start on social media at a younger age. What type of pushback have you received about that? You know, it's interesting. Everyone sort of first looks at me like I'm crazy, but then by the time I'm done talking about it, they 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 they, they agree. And 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 I think I've got it. I've got know how to make the argument really quickly now, which is just just if you think about the things we're really worried about happening on social media, the idea that we would start kids doing that when they become when they when they enter puberty, when all those things are the things they want to do is just absurd, right? You, you, you need like, like I want my kids on social media before they think about sex, before they think about it, while they want to listen to everything I say, while they want to act like dad, that's the time to do it. Not right at the moment where we know they're going to ignore everything dad says. Do you envision children today um, having, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this, having such a leg up because of the fact that they have this powerful computer in their hand at all times that they're going to be 
almost like skip a generation in terms of smarts uh, that that maybe our generation didn't and our parents didn't have. It's like if you want information, it's there. Do you, are they utilizing that tool in their hand enough to where they're just going to be super smart kids? Um, that's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I, I think there's a there's there there's part of the premise of your question that I, I I really do agree with, and I've seen it in in my own college classroom. It is a level of sophistication among kids that's just you know um, levels above what I had at their age, right? Just because of the access of information, right? I was still trying to learn how to go to the library and find the things I wanted, and and they just always have right. the things they want. Um, but I'm not sure that means they're smarter, right? That that's that that the the, the onus is on the grownups to make sure that, that that what happens with that level of content and information sophistication becomes what we would consider smart or wise. Or, or ethical or moral, right? Uh, um, and, and I think all those things have to happen together. And for me, that means we really, as grownups, need to think about how are we going to teach them to use what's 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 at their disposal, right? How are we going to teach them to think about uh, uh, you know meaningful ways to 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 grab from this information database that's so <laughs> that's so accessible uh, you know how do they bring things together what kinds of ideas do we value what kinds of uses do we value and what kinds do we do we find problematic you know I think we're living at a time where we see a lot of problematic uses of technology especially social media um, um, uh, well not just social media e- even among uh, among some uh, some of the the companies and the marketers right we see a lot of things that I think a lot of us go well we don't know how we feel about that and I think the real goal is making sure we've taught our kids to live with these technologies in, in a way that matches our values. Um, um, and that, and that I think we're missing at this point. So I can't say, I think they're way ahead. I mean, there's days where I'm like, Oh, they might get further behind. They may have all this information and no wisdom if we don't do anything to, to do, to, to, to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, yeah. And our audience, our listening audience is mainly K through 12 teachers. So should, should teachers reevaluate the way they teach? I mean, when I was in school, it was, you know, this happened on this date and and you're just kind of learning content and information stuff. That's now, you know, a Siri question away. Um, (laughs) Should teachers maybe think, you know, I need to teach them how to access the information rather than teach them the information. I, I don't know if the question is how to access the information. They're pretty good at that. They're, you know, that's sort of like the skill of you, of working the machine. But I don't know. I don't think that's what you meant. Uh, more, more. What do you do with it once you've accessed it, or what kind of things to access? Right. What questions to ask. Google or Siri or Alexa, right? All right, how do you, well, like, 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 it's not as simple as just everything's there. You know, I often think, you know, teachers really need to concentrate, um, you know, from the, from a content question, I would say on, on what's not Googleable. Um, um, and, and that's a, that's something I use a lot in my own classroom is just sort of say, okay, write me a paper about this, but make sure you don't put anything in it that's Googleable, right? Uh, you, <laughs> that sounds really hard to do. It seems like everything's Googleable, you know. Yeah, but we, you know, there, facts are Googleable, but 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 the the ability to take those facts and put them together into a meaningful order is not Googleable. Um, I mean, you can Google play other people who have done that, and you can find examples of where that's been done, but but Google can't do it. Um, um, uh, I mean, Google can put it together in a meaningful order if we think you know most relevant result equals meaningful order. That that's not what I mean. You know, how do you take these things and make an argument? That's sort of how I would deal with the, the, the question of facts and things, but I think there's even a, a, a deeper thing that teachers should think about, which is almost everything that happens in school, and I talk about this in, in the new childhood, uh, uh, you know, there's a whole section about this. So many of the things we do in school are connected to specific technologies, whether we realize it or not, they're connected to technological errors and economic models. Um, 
And, and so I think we really need to think about whether whether we're teaching kids how to use today's tools to 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 make their lives fulfilled and productive and smart and make themselves employable, or are they using future tools? I mean, one example I give all the time is, uh, uh, you know, I I remember when my kids were really little. Um, already in like in in like a kindergarten first grade math class they're already doing so much sorting right they're sorting they're sorting magic markers they're sorting they're sorting uh i forget what those logs are called the, those little wooden blocks uh i can't uh, cuisinaire logs kids are sorting these right and this is basic early math how do you sort things and go hey how many how many blue ones do i have how many yellow ones do i have how many red ones i have and i would watch them and i go but I don't understand why we don't, while we're not already having them put that into a spreadsheet, right? Why aren't they already entering that into Excel and then seeing it visualized, right? Uh, there's no reason they can't do that early. Um, and, and that gets them to start to think about how to use a database, which, which is one of our most powerful mathematical tools among, among grown-up mathematicians, right? Among, among PhD mathematicians, right? They could already be starting to see the math problems in their world, in a way that they enter into these kinds of these kinds of tools, um, and 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 I would like to see more of that kind of stuff, which isn't a huge change from what happens. It's just sort of the addition of another kind of thinking. With your thinking and what you're you're writing about in the new childhood, do you hear a, a whole lot of other, uh, I guess, thought leaders uh, kind of talking the way that you are? It seems to me like I haven't heard a whole lot of this. <laughs> there's a there's a few um but there, but there's not a lot you're right um um and i think that 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 you know you hear a lot about sort of hey it's the fourth industrial revolution and what do they need to what do, what do kids need to be prepared for jobs that don't exist yet um and and i you know i'm glad that people are having that di- that discussion that's the right discussion but i think often also when we even when we say how do we think about kids being prepared for jobs that don't exist we're we're already sort of stuck in a uh, in an industrial era narrative uh, uh, of how to school prepare them for jobs rather to, than how to school prepare them with these sort of um, civic values that we need to, to, to make sure our society matches the kind of world we want them to live in, right? I used to, you know, people used to always say, how do we prepare our kids for a world that doesn't exist? We also need to ask, how do we prepare the world for our kids? It's true. It's true. Well, the book is The New Childhood, Dr. Jordan Shapiro. Uh, we appreciate your time. Do you have um, a place you like people to connect with you at? Are you big on Twitter or Instagram or anything? I'm pretty. I'm pretty active on Twitter. So uh, and Instagram, but but Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. I'll respond. Uh, um, you know, assuming I'm not I'm not traveling or speaking or in the classroom. I, I'm. It's it's usually open, and uh, and I'm pretty quick to respond if you reach out to me on Twitter. Again, the book is The New Childhood. It's available on Amazon and probably uh, any bookstore that you uh, stick your head into. Uh, Dr. Jordan Shapiro, we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Great questions. It's a pleasure to be here. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. 